I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have a rock star, a writer, a humanitarian, uh, the legendary Biff Naked. I had such a wonderful conversation. She's such a sweet person, which is on her website, uh, she is labeled uh, it Namaste with Horns. <laughs> you know, she has this great reputation for uh, pushing the boundaries of, of just about everything as a punk rock icon. Uh, but she's just such a nice person, too, and, and really wonderful person to talk to. Her career highlights have taken her for around the world on tour uh, for over 20 years now and into your homes uh, via the, the Tonight Show and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and a number of uh, feature films. So, you know, we explore a little bit of her career, but I was more interested in her uh, her lifestyle, her struggles, her overcoming uh, the, her challenges that she has faced, and then the good that she's been able to do with it. So it's been a, it was a real pleasure for me uh, to to chat with her about the evolution of her career, but also the evolution of herself and her spirit uh, throughout her her incredible, uh, long lasting, and still very still going strong career. So here's my conversation on so called normal with Biff Naked. I was thinking all night about where I wanted to start this because you have such an interesting story, such an interesting career, I think, that's evolved over the years. But I'd like to start with your tattoos. Can oh, we talk about very that? Cool. Yes. Because, I mean, we're, we're, uh, it's an audio only podcast, so, I so I'd like to talk about your tattoos because yeah. I, I, I hardly ever know what the fuck I'm doing, let alone. Hilarious. <laughs> let alone it's, yeah, tattoos are very, uh, well, well, they're they, very visual, but. Yeah, and they definitely, I think over time, they ha- they come to represent what a person cannot speak right often yeah so so which of your tattoos uh represent that what you weren't able to either speak at the time or um, an emotion or what well i think when when we started getting tattooed it was literally probably like 1990 or 1989 or 88 yeah literally i'm not going to sit here and say we were underage because i don't want to get anyone in trouble (laughs) but we started getting tattoos um and i'm talking about my my little best friend and i uh, basically because it made us look tough. Right, Literally, that right. was why we wanted one. Uh, I was very into theology because of my dad. Right. And uh, I always wa- I liked symbolism a mm. lot. I got the Eye of Horus as my very first tattoo because I thought it was really universal. It's the all-seeing eye. It's mm. the mother of truth. It was something I knew I would, uh, you know, appreciate having forever. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't... Tweety Bird. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, the skull and the knife through it or anything, right. which I would get now because it's funny. Right. <laughs> uh, but when I was younger, I took it very seriously. Yeah. And uh, and then over time, it just, you know, I I was learning about Taoism. I was heavily into Taoism, mm. and uh, I got the symbol for the way. You know, this is Tao. I always had um, a real, I guess connection with my birthplace, mm. which is India, I, mm. as an adopted kid, I had no other um, identity. Right. I, I was just reading one of your bios. It says it's captivating. Whoever your bio writer was is really good. Or did you write it? I'm not sure which okay, one. So, There's oh, a well, million so no, versions. I'll, I'll, I bet there are. But I'll, it says Biff Naked was born in secret to a teenager living in India, the product of a Canadian girl and a British boy. She was rejected by both families, hidden away in a mental hospital. <laughs> That, that's that's that, a compelling bio. Well, and it's not a lie. <laughs> but, no, you sure. know, it's a, you know, I I'm an effusive and flowery writer. Right. Um, 
you know, it's kind of like, you know, my, my birth mom is only 15 and a half years older than I am. Wow, yeah. And uh, she was living in India with her parents at the time. It's kind of more simple than it sounds. It sounds mm. extremely romantic and mm. quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. But on paper, I suppose it is. Mm. Um, but um, she's also adopted. Okay. And not having that connection to a heritage, plus my parents were American. I was the only Canadian in my mm. family. Uh, but I, I just always felt like India was my only, um, you know, kind of cultural identity in a mm-hmm. way. And uh, and so a lot of my tattoos do reflect sure. that. There's yeah, a lot of Hindu deities. Um, when we first started getting into music, for example, some of the bands that were popular were like into Hare Krishna. Right. Uh, so particularly a band named Shelter that I was really into, they were like, Krishna punks mm. and it was something that I really identified with and could enjoy and appreciate and uh, I don't felt, I don't really know much about Hare special. Krishna other than you know the folks at the airport of course uh, right? of so course. Like, like many people there's so. a big temple here for example I've in Toronto yeah, yeah. and uh, Govinda's restaurant offers food to, to people like a lot of different parishes do sure. um, I don't know you know the thing with my parents were Christians and very religious mm. and uh, they raised us to be uh, basically anything we felt like being. Right, right. You know, your adoptive w- parents. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I-, I liked it all. And my mm. father used to accuse me of cherry picking. Mm. They said you can't cherry pick religions just to suit your mood. Right. Um, but I kind of, you know, as I got older, I kind of just really believed that all paths lead to the same place anyway. Mm. And there are a couple of different religions that really believe that there's a there's religions obviously that i think are quite beautiful i have a, one of my best friends is a atheist mm. um and very intellectual and lovely and funny uh but he you know he thinks everything is magic beans right also ultimately and it's not that he's wrong mm. uh but i think that people really often they really need faith if they mm. can't uh believe in themselves or their families well, yeah I, I think that atheism at least every manifestation of it that i've seen is is essentially a religion unto itself it has a set of beliefs yes. or non-beliefs right, right. Yeah. and and i feel like it takes some work to be uh, committed as a whole atheist, right? Because, yes. like you say, all all world religions seem to generally point in the same direction. Definitely, right? uh, and I agree with you. I think that with, uh, I mean, it, people love to self-identify mm. with something, and uh, yeah, my my atheist buddy. He loves to tell me that he's atheist, just like my meat-eating friends love to tell me how much they love their steak. <laughs> or people who go to CrossFit, they <laughs> you know? love to talk about CrossFit. And that's cool, yeah. you know, and I just I just think, hey, fantastic, you yeah, know, yeah. that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that people sometimes really need something to believe in. Yeah. And in this kind of uh, weird time, this weird era that we're living in, uh, I think it's not enough for people to just believe in themselves mm. or their job or their families anymore. I think right. there's a lot of disillusionment that's um, happened over, I mean, the, since the beginning of time, of course. But I think now uh, is uh, kind of people are having trouble coping. And there's different reasons for that that I'm mm. sure a lot of scholars can mm-hmm. talk about far better than I can. But um mm. I think that faith really helps people. How is it, how, was it important for you? At, uh, I mean, you've been through a lot. You've you've overcome a lot. And was your faith an important uh, factor in that? In 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 pulling you through and giving you strength? Or what is it about faith that that you resonate with? 
Well, you know, I think it's um, having uh, not necessarily the rules, mm. but having the opportunity to be grateful. Right. Ultimately, I think that that at the end of the day, no matter what is happening in our life, um, people can still be grateful. And I, and I always think that, you know, for me, I've been through nothing compared to, you know, some of my North African friends who've mm. fled for their lives or seen their family members literally butchered in front of them. And somehow they still wake up the next day uh, filled with like hope mm. and grace and determined passionate to go out and still try and save the world and and I just think that that type of resilience and incredible amount of just I don't know gratitude they still have for life despite what they have seen witnessed and and been through I mean to me that inspires me more than any uh, written word. I find that people I've certainly experienced it myself that 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 gratitude is almost born out of that struggle in some ways that yes. that resilience that until you see the other side it's hard to be grateful unless you know the difference I think. You were adopted when you were a, a baby, right? Yes. Yeah. So did you were you raised knowing that you were uh adopted or Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, my sister was adopted a year before me. Okay. And uh and so she knew she was adopted. I knew I was adopted. Plus, my sister is Indian. Mm-hmm. I was Caucasian. My parents are Caucasian, but they were American, so that was a different thing. Right. And I got to be the Canadian, the only Canuck in the family. And you were raised as a as a Canadian? As the only Canuck. <laughs> it wasn't even Canadian. My right. father would introduce me as the Canuck. As the Canuck. Yeah. yeah. And then he would introduce us as twins, right. even though it was very obvious <laughs> that we weren't. That was just really how he loved to do things. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it was kind of uh, always known. I've always felt very happy that I was an adopted person. Mm-hmm. Um, I always knew who my birth mom was. Mm-hmm. For my 21st birthday, my parents flew me to meet her oh, wow. as my birthday present. How did you feel and, taking that flight to Oh, see amazing. Yeah, I had been yeah. wanting to meet her since I was 15. I was convinced my birth mom was Sophia Loren. Right. I was convinced she was this uh, very glamorous uh, woman because my parents were so modest and right. they were very austere and... And I was a gregarious troublemaker, and my youngest sister, who was their natural child, was shy like my mother, mm. and uh, and I was the opposite of everyone. I was gregarious mm. and just ridiculously yeah. um, social and class clown mm-hmm. and all those things. And meeting my birth mom gave me a bit of a... I guess, more context Mm -hmm. in a way because she is exactly like me. Really? Down to the mannerisms. So you're genetically punk rock? It's incredible. It is incredible. (laughs) And and she's a realtor when I I met her. Uh Um, And it's fun, you know, to to know the difference, uh, for me anyway, what's environment and Mm. what is natural. Mm -hmm. And, And so I've always been really fascinated by that. And moving out here, I live close to my birth family, mm. oh, and okay. so I've seen them several times since I've been here, and that's been loads of fun. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's it's amazing. so much fun. So you mentioned you're you were raised in a Christian household, but it sounds like a, a quite a an open one. Uh, oh, definitely. I mean, my parents. Uh, you know, again, my my dad was a dentist, like so he was right. a professor of dentistry, and and he loved to dabble in theology and and whatnot, and. You know, I think that uh, in any household, having for every family to have a book from every religion, I think is 
you know, it's gone with the, the way of the Encyclopedia Britannica mm. now that we have the internet, of course. Uh, but for us, we were voracious readers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are so many different beautiful versions of books from the Quran to, um, you know, the King James Bible, very different from the Good News Bible, mm. for example. And again, it's all about words and language. And, mm. uh, and uh, I'm always attracted to very flowery, descriptive uh, writing. Mm. And uh, the Torah is great. Every, you know, I love it all. Mm. So you've always been something of an artist then, it, it seems like. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, you know, anything, if you're, if you like, uh, if you like, being creative, anything is art, even mm. cooking. I love that. Yeah, yeah. When did the music piece start to come in? Did you were you always attracted to to music? Did Never. you know that you really hated it? Really? Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, <laughs> I okay. Know. I was in ballet from yeah. the age of three uh, until I was old enough to start smoking and uh, wear a leather jacket, basically, <laughs> uh, much to my parents' chagrin. I bet. Yeah. Uh, and music was never something that I. Uh, had any interest in. I wanted to be a ballerina, Mm. you know, when I was very little. And then I wanted to be a choreographer. And then I kind of fell into uh, being in theater. Mm. It was a very good fit for chatty me. (laughs) And uh, I went to the University of Winnipeg to study theater Mm -hmm. and met some guys in my class who were in a band. And it was really that simple. They said, Mm. you should come and and come to our jam, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a world music band. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were about 13 members in this band, drummers and singers. And, and it was just a very nurturing introduction mm-hmm. into being in group music. Right. And one of the drummers from that band had a punk rock band. Okay. And they needed a singer. And that's really and that's how, how it happened. happened. Yeah, yeah. So then finding your way in those early days, weeks, months. Uh, what was that like for you to try to, to figure out what it was like to, to be a performer, not just to have an interest in music, but to actually be performing music in a meaningful way? Uh, well, I think because I had a theater background, there right. was no, I had no uh, very problem being on the stage. Yeah. Um, but being in a punk rock band, particularly, I was very determined to be taken seriously. Okay. Uh, there weren't a lot of females at that time in Winnipeg in punk rock bands. Mm. So, you know, there were a lot of skeptics in their audience and there were, uh, it was a big sausage party for the most part. And so it was important to me, especially when I was very young, to not, you know, I would refuse to be hypersexualized, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, I could, you know, sit here and quote Camille Paglia till the cows come home and Mm. say that that was actually an impossibility, Mm. just given the fact that the only female these guys had seen on a stage was a a stripper Mm. so you know i never took it personally if they would cat call or or yell terrible things or throw things or anything it just made us kind of tougher out of spite did did you experience that people throwing oh my goodness oh yes of course and every Mm. you know every band that i know from my era of music from belly to the lunatics to l7 Mm. i mean you know, we were used to it. Right. And, and, you know, the show does not stop because, you know, some loser is, you know, yelling things at you. Uh, The show goes on and you just basically act tougher and, you know, some, I've had to fight on stage. You really? You know, and that's something wouldn't happen today. Yeah. You know, because these people wouldn't have access to the band usually or whatever. But, you know, and there's, there's part of me that looks at, young performers today and uh, 
you know, I have a really hard time with understanding the perspective of a young woman today because I'm so conditioned mm. uh, to accept all the garbage. Right. And, and so for us, we kind of used it as a challenge to make us tougher, stronger. Sure. You know, like I always say, like stabbing yourself with a fork. Right, right. You know, because they're going to make you into a, I don't know, a canoe or right. a suitcase. It's some joke my yeah. father used to tell about... Um, Somebody was going to be turned into a, a canoe, and the guy had one last wish, and he all he wished for was a fork so he could poke holes in his skin. <laughs> and I always thought that was an interesting uh, way to describe kind of, I guess, being strong against any kind of, uh, you know, stressors. Right. Yeah. It, it must have gotten to you at some point, though. Did you ever feel like, did you ever get tired of being strong all the time? Um, I think that it becomes a habit and yeah. a coping technique like that uh, really lent itself to being able to persevere right. and to have endurance on these tours. Uh, the first tour I did in Europe, I was probably, I don't know, it was probably like 1995. Mm. And uh, I was already a solo artist by this point. We were on our first record. And I was on tour with a band called Life of Agony. They were out in New York. I was a massive fan. They were on Roadrunner at the time, and we were on this uh, label that was distributed by Roadrunner called Adol. And uh, a lot of their audience was just not having any of me singing Daddy's Getting Married. <laughs> oh, no. Like It was a very different audience. <laughs> yeah. And so they would throw things, they would yell things, and that was life. I mean, mm. I used to um, go on stage in the beginning of the show and sing this song a cappella called Tell On You, Letter to My Rapist. Mm. And that was something that I used to think was like going out on the stage and basically impaling myself mm. in front of the audience. And after that point, nothing mattered. Like mm. that would be like the hardest thing to do, especially right out of the gate. And then after that, I was... Basically, anything that they could do would never be as hard as singing that song. So it right. was kind of almost a, a a deliberation or, a you know, do the worst possible thing you can do. And then after that, everything is easier. Everything's easy. Yeah. yeah and yeah. It, it just really, I think that for me as a performer, uh, it enabled me to really learn a skill set mm. that, uh, perhaps, you know, a lot of young performers today, they they just will not put up with any raspberries. Yeah. You know, they won't put yeah. up with any guff from their audiences. And I, the, the audience was different for me. It was a, a very aggressive, tough right. male audience. Um, and, and it wasn't even necessarily you just taking it, you know, laying back and taking it. You were fighting back. Absolutely. Like. And by the end of the show, they were all fans. Right. You know, and I, and I knew that that would happen uh, because I worked so hard. To, to do that and win the crowd over. Mm. And ultimately, the exchange between performer and audience is always, uh, it it's always has a symbiosis to it. Mm. Um, and even the most hardened, awful, uh, judgmental punk rocker skinhead in Vienna is going to soften, you know, by the end of the show when he's, you know, singing along to Lucky. Right. You know, and that would be the victory every night and make it all worth it. Every yeah. single day. So, again, it was like, you know, I, I look back at all of that stuff very fondly. And uh, I don't have any resentment towards uh, the misogynists that I've run into right. over time. Because I always 
really believed that it was never personal. Yeah. Now, were your bandmates mostly men? Uh, always. always. Almost always. Almost. I should yeah. actually say I had uh, uh, Coco Culbertson was the bass player mm. of mine for a long time. She was in a Canadian band called Taste of Joy. Mm. And, uh, and then Gail Greenwood. Uh, came into my band for a couple of years, which was a real blessing because she was a real mentor for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she's in Belly, so yeah. they're from well, she's from Rhode Island. And were your male, especially at that time, were your male bandmates surprised by what you were facing that they weren't facing? Uh, not at all. No, it was not really. even brought yeah. up. They felt <laughs> like, really. No, I yeah. don't even think. Did they, they support you? Did they? Well, like... sure. Oh, certainly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, especially in the. Uh, the early days, I mean, I can remember, you know, in Italy, there would be, you know, a lot of very impolite uh, guys who now would be considered assaulting mm-hmm. us. Uh, but we would just like physically throw them off the stage. Mm. Uh, the first time I lo- got my teeth knocked out the, the first on time. stage was uh, from a stage diver who was, uh, they would come on the stage and then he left from the stage and his foot kicked the microphone through my teeth. Uh. And it was, you know, it was a shame because it was fourth song into the show. <laughs> and, and it yeah, was that like 1,500 <laughs> kids. And it was like, oh, dude, really? And so we couldn't continue the show. And that was the worst part. I mean, eventually we did a makeup show. But, right. um, you know, it was like being baptized. You right. know, it was like the coolest thing that ever happened. We all just sat there laughing, oh. making fun of me. <laughs> and it was very cool. And, uh, and yeah, it, it makes me laugh to this day. It was definitely a, a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what a uh, an incredible sense of community too. Like you say, yes. whether even with with your band, sure, but then with the audience to be able to to enter into that thing together with them. You know, it's yeah, it's it's you know, I, I just think that uh, coming from a, a background of hard music mm. uh, was really a wonderful education for mm-hmm. me, just mm-hmm. in general as a performer. Mm. Have you? How have you noticed your? I mean, you've been a, you've been doing this, like you say, since you were a teenager basically so mm-hmm. um how has that evolved over the years now you're kind of an icon of <laughs> of canadian music so um, it's different know, now it is different and i you know when i went through breast cancer uh, i made a record because we were on a deadline and mm. i really had nothing better to do <laughs> during chemo um you know there's just nothing else for me to do i couldn't really go on tour right although now uh i know girls who've gone through chemo and then I've helped them work out their calendar so they can still tour and oh, wow. get back for their chemo. It's, uh, treatment paradigms are a little different now. So, mm. I mean, knowing what I know now, uh, I'd probably do it differently next time. But I was at home and we made a record. Um, and then when it came time to tour that record about nine months later, I had just finished my chemotherapy. I had an ovarectomy and my hair started growing back and we went on tour basically mm. in that order. And I had so many... Uh, physiological problems mm. with the stage show. Uh, but of course, you know, like a dog, I would say like a dog that gets hit by a car, <laughs> you stand up anyway and you keep right. going because uh, you're not going to stop the show for any reason. Mm. And uh, I've missed only one show in my career, which was in 1996 in Regina because everyone had strep throat and that was oh, it. No. I've never missed the show. Um but I think that uh, it, it didn't feel authentic for me after a little while. Mm. And um, I felt like uh, like I was lying. Mm. You know, I 
looked very different. When I went through chemo, I gained 45 pounds in mm. a month. Wow. And, uh, and that was very different for me. Um, is I, that kind of weight gain typical for uh, It is. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know that because no. they just assume everyone in chemo is like end stage of life, wasting sure. away. And that's not the case at all. You know, chemotherapy is often included with a steroid so that you tolerate the infusion and it, it makes your lymph nodes swell up and mm. just a, a number, a variety of different things contribute to that. And so, you know, I I learned I was anorexic mm. my entire adult life and suddenly I wasn't anorexic. So I looked very different. I didn't have right. the same look. My hair obviously was... Uh, you know, I didn't care when I had to lose my hair. But then when I went back to work, mm-hmm. I realized I looked so different. Mm-hmm. And the audience was like, you know, me doing the tour uh, for the Promise record, to me, I felt like they were coming because they, everyone still thought I was going to croak and that was mm-hmm. their last opportunity to see it. Um, but it felt inauthentic to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were asked to do a number of acoustic shows just because I was doing some some speeches for breast cancer, and mm-hmm. they always would ask us to play. And it really felt very natural, um, and I felt comfortable, and I felt like I was finding a new identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, I turned 40, and mm-hmm. it was like uh, I, I felt like I was just coming into being a real woman, like, you know, and maturing. So finding my way over the last... Uh, several years was uh, a real journey Mm -hmm. and I love performing acoustically when we put the book out in 2016 um, you know book readings they really they don't pay you a lot to go and read it at a bookstore (laughs) so what we wound up doing was enshrouding it in an acoustic concert and then reading a story and then playing the relevant song and we we wound up making this three-hour show uh, that was a soft cedar venues, and uh, I dragged my poor husband uh, along as my guitar accompanist, and then I just make fun of him <laughs> or my mother-in-law most of the night, and uh, and he drinks wine and and kind of suffers through it. Uh, but it's lovely and it's fun yeah. and I love it so much. And how did audiences respond to that? It was amazing, approach, yeah? and also my audience, you know. I kind of didn't realize they all grew up with me. Right. And these girls were also turning 40 and they had gone through a lot. You know, any of us who, you know, managed to survive through our 30s, mm-hmm. you know, we've already been through quite a few different life changes, whether it's, uh, you know, real heartache, uh, breakups as adults, relationship breakups, our parents are, are dying you know, family pets die. We've had to do moves. We've lost jobs. Mm. You know, real things, adulting things that are, you know, often very transformational for people. Mm-hmm. And people go through a lot of, I guess, hard times, even with children. You know, having children is actually very, very difficult uh, for a set of parents, especially the first time. It's very transformational for mm. people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to have this audience come to these shows, um, felt extremely special, yeah. you know, and uh, eventually we got back to doing the rock shows, right. which were, which felt very much like a victory in a way. But that also made me realize it took me ten years to feel normal right. after cancer treatment, and if that's the place where I started from and wound up, I now the the book that I'm writing now is about really how women are kind of. Um, you know, they, everyone says, you know, that breast cancer is a blessing 
and they lose their identity and, you know, how do they feel feminine? But it's really so much more than that because uh, the real um, small physiological changes that are still going on, residual mm. changes that happen to a, a body in a person for years, and then they don't understand why they're not uh, experiencing 100% health and wellness, and their families are don't understand how they can complain because they survived, or mm -hmm. there's just mm -hmm. so many things. It's just been really, really interesting. When were you diagnosed again with? So I was cancer? diagnosed and went through treatment in 2008. 2008. Mm -hmm. okay. And I, I heard on another interview, uh, you mentioned your reaction when you first discovered. I am a clown. <laughs> So. I am the class clown, you know, and I feel badly about it uh, because the it was actually the, the surgeon that I met with, even though my GP said, you know, yeah, you, your biopsy tested positive. And I kind of knew it, you know, because mm. as they say, if you're intuitive, you know, I'm not intuitive. <laughs> I just chew gum. Like, that's always my answer. <laughs> uh, but I, I kind of had a feeling. Right. Um, and uh, when the the surgeon uh, was speaking with me. It was the first time I had met her, and my then husband was in the room. Um, he was a little uh, uncooperative. Uh, just our dynamic was not real cooperative because he was obviously it was a stressful situation, mm -hmm. and I'm quite comfortable with hospitals, and a lot of people aren't. He was mm -hmm. one of them. Mm -hmm. So she said, "Beth, you have breast cancer," and then looked right at him and said, "Your wife will lose her hair." Mm. And, you know, it, I always use that as an example of basically the healthcare system because here's this really competent, lovely, compassionate uh, surgeon who says this to my husband. That's the first, absolute mm -hmm. first thing that she said. And that's probably because that's her conditioning. That's mm -hmm. because every patient before me that is the question the husband asks. Right. Not not if you'll live. Correct. Uh, if you'll lose your hair. And, and I yeah. think that's very, very telling right. about our society and how we view uh, our, our wives and mothers, mm. you know, when it comes to, um, you know, female cancers, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not great with silences or uncomfortable silences. And I just, I said, doc, don't worry about it. My husband's an ass man. He'll be fine, you know, and because I had to, I had to say something uh, because it was so awkward and right. I assure you he was not an, anything close to an ass man, you know, so that was even worse that I said that about him um, and she didn't laugh at all. No, nobody which, laughed. which even makes the silence the worse. The nurse didn't laugh, but I laughed and slapped my knee and I think I'm sure I snort laughed and, yeah. um, but yeah. you know, I just think that, uh, that kind of set the pace for me because right. I, I realized that there's more to this. Uh, that it's not really just about me. I'm right. really getting this information uh, because I think it's really remarkable that that's her conditioning. Yeah. And so that to me was a bigger story that I was ready to learn and take on. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just fascinating. Now you said that that you had a sense anyway that 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 you were that you probably had cancer and I think I had heard that you had a a, a reaction of almost relief it sounded like when you felt that you way. You know and this brings us over to mental health yeah. for sure because I think that we get busy and we don't really realize for sure. I mean it's different now because we're talking 10 years ago right. or and you know now I think that 
our we're more aware of our mental health and our stability and how it's very much like an ocean. You know, mm. our our wellness comes in and out like a tide, depending on what's going on mm. in our life, whether it's with work or with our family. And I just think that I hadn't realized how I'd never had a vacation in since I was eighteen. I've only ever toured. And it was high pressure, high stress. Um, you know, I, I was so relieved that I thought, oh, I'm, I can die. Like, I'm done. Mm. And, oh, what a glamorous, you know, story. I would love to, I would love to die young, you know, mm. good-looking corpse, you know, <laughs> the whole thing. And, and I was really very comfortable with that feeling. It was definitely a, like a wash of relief. Were you suicidal? Uh, I don't believe I ever was. Right. You know, I think that, you know, I think part of me believes, um, you know, and I'm just a lay person. Yeah. You know, I don't have any education or, or experience with, uh, with uh, you know, a, a su- suicidal patients per se. But every girlfriend I've ever had, every, every girl I know, hmm. for example. You know, as we get older, we're more honest with each other hmm. when we have conversations. And... I think for sure I'm pretty confident that I, you know, have been in the pits of despair as an adolescent, for mm-hmm. example, sure. where I just couldn't go on. And I would fan, lie on my bed, you know, tears, hot tears streaming down my face, fantasizing uh, about, you know, how I'm going to kill myself, primarily to punish, you know, my mm-hmm. parents or, or they'll miss, I'll show them they'll miss me. And, and I think that may have come up for me in my 20s. Quite possibly again, mm-hmm. but with uh, the cancer diagnosis, it was more so that you were. Oh, that tired. was a relief. You're just tired. But I think that every girl that I've ever met has also confessed those same things, and, and I think yeah. that. But but really, that is not like clinical suicidal ideology, mm. you know. And even in our uh, language that we use, you know, I have a lot of very funny friends who who say things like, "I'm going to blow my brains out." Yeah. That's something that we grew up saying as a common expression. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that is not clinical suicidal ideology. Right. Same with anxieties, you know, and now it's a real blanket statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my goddaughter ha- will have anxiety and about her math test. And I say, yes, of course, you know, everyone's anxious about a math test, but it's not clinical anxiety and I think that so for for me I know that even though sure you know if I can be honest certainly you know in my language over time in my lifetime Mm. uh, I have said stuff like that but I really don't think that really and truly uh, that is what it is really about Uh, my husband uh, has never had any in his lifetime and he's been through you know, more than I have, I believe, in life, in relationships and, and stressors. He's never, it's never occurred to him. Hmm. And I just think some people just are not wired that way. Right. You know, no matter the pits of despair that they can ever be faced with, they just don't have that wiring. Right. And uh, it seems that you have a very, uh, it's not even a different mindset. It's a, it's a very refreshing mindset. I think that your default coming into challenges is, is humor and, and optimism looking for how, how you can use it for something good. It it's seems. just so much fun. Right. No, really. I mean, yeah. it's just so, I don't even know how to be different. And I, and again, I, I blame my parents right. for that just because that's, you know, that's how it is. Um, 
But I also think being a performer mm. uh, has really helped me and aided me in that because it would never occur to me well, and, to and, be any other way. Yeah, and in the I mean the music industry probably more than most maybe maybe neck and neck with comedy industry mm-hmm. um certainly drugs uh depression suicide uh, happen all the time you, yes. you must have encountered that in your in your touring and your work with other musicians definitely yeah. you know definitely and i think that for me i stopped drinking alcohol when i was i don't know i'm going to say like 24 and, mm. and primarily because i knew that i would lose my voice right Really, that was my motivation. You know, and I tell lots of jokes about I kept waking up in Italy <laughs> or, you know, but, but really, you know, when my judgment is impaired, I talk too much, mm. period, the end. And we would be on tour and I would lose my voice and there was nothing worse. You know, it was pretty rare that I would leave the flock and like, you know, just go home with some dude or, or some, you know, misadventure would befall me. Mm. Uh, but should it ever have happened, certainly there was alcohol involved. Right. Uh, so I always knew that, it, you know, if I wanted to really be a professional, mm-hmm. I just simply couldn't drink. Everyone else could drink. I have right. no problem with that. And that, that didn't, you didn't feel the pressure of that Never, around you all the time? Not ever, really? because mm-hmm. it was the fear of not singing well was greater yeah. than the fear of anything else. Yeah. And, uh, and once Gail Greenwood was in my band, of course, Gail has been a straight edge her whole life. Mm. And uh, which makes me laugh. I started smoking cigarettes at 10 years old, like every other kid in grade five. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was, I don't know, she's never had a, uh, a drop of alcohol yeah. or a puff of a joint. And I looked up to her. Right. So it was very, very easy for me to kind of, you know, blend into that straight edge ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's weird, you know, depending on where you go, it means different things. Yeah. Uh, you know, lucky for me, I, you know, I didn't eat meat because we were poor basically. Mm, right. And that was like my original way I got into being a vegetarian uh, and then vegan eventually because we just didn't eat j- dairy. You know, mm. why would we eat cheese? It's constipating. It was like, right. it was so simple. <laughs> right. I was like, yeah, why would practical. I ever eat that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of how it started for me. It wasn't me, you know, running out to try and X up my hands and be this straight edge right. kid, but it really served me well. And I think that people who do drink alcohol on in a job that's so isolating mm. uh it doesn't matter if you have five thousand kids in the mosh pit in mm. front of your you know your stage every night it's very isolating how so that, that's um, interesting you would think you're always surrounded by people right which can be very lonely sure. because you really ultimately always have to have your game face on mm. and uh and i think probably for men i'm gonna guess uh it's more so than for women i think mm. Uh, you know, men really aren't, uh, at least, you know, the bands that I grew up uh, liking and being around, they, it's not really recommended that they whine. Mm. You know, it will be mm-hmm. really kind of considered whining if they, you know, confess that they're feeling lonely or mm. or anything. And the party's going on. You can't be a wet blanket. Mm-hmm. You, you know, so. And now I think, you look at, I mean. Chester Bennington and, yes, and so many others. That's remarkable to right. me, you know, I, and it is hard for us, the living, right. you know, to understand for sure, because we sit there and go, you know, this person had it all, plus children, you know, mm-hmm. same with Chris Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's just, uh, it's tragic, mm-hmm. you know, it really is. But it um, sounds like you you can kind of get at least a small piece of what they may have been feeling, that that isolation, being surrounded by that idea that they have to suck it up, that they have to always sure. have that face on, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and again, this goes back to, 
you know, being clinically depressed or or having suicidal ideology. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's a, there's something going on physiologically, Mm. uh, chemically Mm -hmm. with the brain in that situation. And I think that that's not the experience of the majority Mm -hmm. of guys who are just isolated and lonely on tour who are drinking and, you know, maybe lean into alcoholism. And, you know, that's something that, is hard to correct, mm-hmm. especially if you're always in that environment. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not an easy job. I mean, there's there's a lot of different occupations that I'm sure lend themselves to that, whether you're in the military or mm-hmm. law enforcement, anything, corrections, mm-hmm. certainly. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, if you're in a tour bus with, you know, 10 other people all the time, definitely there's going to be stressors that wear you down. Since your diagnosis, and it, and it's been ten years, you said since yes, the it diagnosis has. treatment. Wow, congratulations! Thank you. Um, past the ten year anniversary already, is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and I'm very happy for that. Yeah, and looks everything looks good now. You know what? They kicked me out. They kicked they, you out. They kicked yeah. me out of the program, and uh, you know the thing with the Canadian government and our healthcare system is kind of interesting in a way. It was a, it was a great learning opportunity for me to just learn what that is like Mm. and uh, a lot of things are in place that do assist women in in beating cancer for sure but uh you know if you need extra medications like i had a blood clot in my surgical port Mm. and i had to take a drug called fragment which is like a low molecular heparin it's a blood thinner basically Mm -hmm. and they're pre-filled syringes you have to self-inject your you know your stomach fat or your leg or whatever it's like (laughs) you know you got to talk yourself into it every morning and and do it but it's not covered because it doesn't uh, affect the cancer cell right so it is not covered you know, and if you do not have extended medical, it is not covered. Mm-hmm. And so, and I was fascinated by that. Same with white blood cell boosters. Mm-hmm. You know, if uh, if they're concerned uh, that you are plummeting, your white blood cell count is plummeting in between your chemo treatments, you can access and utilize these fascinating little uh, drugs that boost those white blood cells so that you mm-hmm. will stay on your course and, and not miss uh, the, you know, perfectly timed chemo. Uh, But if you do not have uh, extended medical, you're not going to have that covered. It comes out of pocket. and Most people can't can't afford that. You know, breast cancer patients that I met throughout my treatment and still now as a volunteer, they all work Mm. through their chemo and they work full time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's very luxurious for a, a woman to be able to take that time off. Sure. Um, there's probably better, you know, employers are probably a little bit better now and they, they can provide some type of leave of absence for, for people. But it's difficult to get. Right. And, uh, and there's, you know, it's just really, really mm. revealing, you know, all the gaps and how the system is a little bit tiered. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you, if you have money you'll be able to fight it sure, a little sure. better. No, I'm sure that in, additional, in addition to how physically taxing the treatment probably was for you, I mean, from everything, I've, I've never, I've never uh, fortunately had to go through somebody or with somebody who was going through cancer treatment, but uh, emotionally as well, I imagine it must have been extremely difficult for you to, to navigate that, right? Well, you know, at the time, uh, again, I only know 
being a performer. Right. So for me, going to chemotherapy, you're in a room with five other people. That is a captive audience. Sure. <laughs> like for me, that's a captive audience. And, and of course, the, the, the mood in the room is somber. And how long does a, a typical course take? Oh, uh, well, for example, like you're there for probably a couple hours. Yeah. You know, okay. and you go every three weeks. Although now, uh, treatments have evolved. And if a patient doesn't tolerate it, very well, then, you know, they'll find a way to try and dial it in for that particular individual. They can okay. go every week and have lesser dose or, okay. I mean, it's a miracle what they have right. now. But chances are you're in that small room with a few people That's for a right. few hours usually. Generally. Yeah. And often, you know, that maybe they have a family member come with them or their friends and it, it depends, you know, but I just like, again, I'm a chatty person. Mm. And uh, even though I was bald, I bought wigs that were blonde, you know, so that I would be like in a disguise. Mm. It never worked. Do people always recognize Always. Yeah. And it was like, and it was loads of fun. And I had so much fun. Right. I had so much fun every time. I love to tease the nurses yeah. and, uh, you know, yell, yell and pretend I'm ticklish all the time and, you know, we just had a riot every time. And mm. I just I just thought, wow, you know, that's something that I think is important. Everybody needs a clown in the room. And so even when I was done my treatment, I volunteered to accompany patients, go for their own treatment. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it was something that really changed the entire experience for me yeah. uh, because I never experienced it as as a bad thing. I called it the good medicine day mm. uh, because really that's what it is. Right. And, and I think that, um, you know, there is a lot of fear uh, for a lot of people. They are afraid of dying. Sure. And I'm, I never have been uh, because I just, you know, couldn't believe all the jams I got out of in my life. I didn't die. Holy shit. I didn't die, you know, or whatever. Right, right. And so I have a bit of a different attitude and it's hard for me to be able to discern uh, whether it's just my, you know, bullshit coping technique that right. I just don't know any better. It's just how I do things. Um, I don't think there was one time, even though it's quite cumulative and towards the end of your chemo appointments, you are weary, right. you know, sure. and, and that's a physiological thing and it affects your, your serotonin and your dopamine. You're getting worn down. It's exhausting. Uh, but I never stopped performing. Mm. You know, and that's really what got me through it. To come back to the idea of religion uh, and your tattoos and, yes. and your, your connection to uh, a variety of different religions, it seems. Was there anything from that upbringing, from those beliefs that really informed how you approach death and, and your, your optimistic take, your, your choice of optimism, it seems, in many ways in these kinds of situations? I don't know for sure. You know, I don't think that uh, because we didn't live near my grandparents, um, I didn't see them frequently. And mm. when they died, uh, it didn't really, you know, I don't think that it really resonated with me mm. at all. Um, I never had any fear of death. Yeah. Uh, and my father used to always uh, brag to us kids about his Buddhist friends who were the only ones smiling at funerals. Mm. And he always said, do you know why a Buddhist smiles at a funeral? And it was like we would roll our eyes. Dad, you've told us this a million times. And, and it was really the neutrality right. uh, that my parents always kind of said, well, you know, the body dies. That's all it is. You know, and it would they would never say, this is where your soul goes or you have a spirit that goes right. in. They would never say that. My father would always ask the question, do you think that you have a soul or mm. do you 
Do you wonder if your soul's going to go somewhere? He would always ask a question. Uh, so I think that we were allowed to just explore what that looked like mm-hmm. and uh, and what we thought about it. And I think that every I don't know, I think that my childish version of heaven and hell was probably very different than it is today. What is it today? Uh, I don't know. You know, I think it's still evolving and I think it is for everyone because we're pragmatic. Mm. You know, I think that, uh, you know, as we get older, we're very practical. And, uh, you know, I think probably many people lean into agnostic beliefs Mm -hmm. uh, because it just seems kind of like the diplomatic thing to do Mm. you know why wouldn't we just be open to anything Mm -hmm. you know i love making jokes about it you know Mm. and saying the alien that's when the aliens come or like (laughs) whatever you know because there's so many different beliefs and and even though i think some of them are extremely hilarious they mean something to that person um so i don't know you know i think that uh i think it's all cool i really you know i love uh I love the idea of helping people work through their fear mm-hmm. uh, as they transition. Um, doing any palliative care volunteering that I've done, it's always just because I was mm-hmm. asked. And, and almost always it's with breast cancer patients mm-hmm. or their families. Um, and that's a different energy. And every patient is different. And every patient uh, dies differently, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a slow or a long uh, hospice situation. And I just find, I think I'm still learning mm-hmm. uh, what that's about. I have a very keen interest in it. Often I feel like I'm going to quit my job and go back to school because I'm so passionate about uh, about patients and end-of-life work. Mm-hmm. Um, just through our own like yoga practicing and, and being a meditator, uh, I like the idea of being able to go in a room and meditate with people mm-hmm. or their families mm-hmm. um, and, and in any whatever form that looks like for them. And there's a lot of different rituals people do with the dying. I've seen, you know, I've had lots of laughs with palliative patients who mm-hmm. are like, please get my family out of here. They're all wearing black again. Right. And we laugh our heads <laughs> off because like, yeah, do you mind going home and like, you know, yeah, it's yeah, just grieving, funny. grieving. It's home. just like yeah, yeah. so funny. What, what have you learned actually then from spending so much time with dying people and from yourself for, uh, essentially dying for a period of well, time? Well, you know, I think that it people get really clear, mm. you know, and I think it's an opportunity for us who are not palliative patients mm-hmm. uh, to therefore learn from that and, and get clear. And mm. what I mean is, uh, you know, all the priorities shift. Things get really clear when, you know, you don't have any more time mm. and uh, and you have a, a bucket list of things you need to do. There's tasks, uh, emotional tasks that you, you want to accomplish, mm. you know, so that you can feel satisfied. Really, that's that's the the bottom line. Mm. You know, you, you're in your final chapter. How do you how do you get to write that? chapter yourself because only you can write it right. you know unless of course you're you know uh, a patient's incapacitated but I just think that that's something that I love exploring mm. I think it's really uh, uh, it's it's something I'm driven to do and you, I wouldn't have known that had I not been thrown into that situation right. as a patient so are you satisfied or do you still have more to do I've always been satisfied mm. the day. I don't know why I mm. just think that uh you know, I don't know. Like, you know, do I think my dad and my dead dogs are waiting for me on the other side? Maybe. I don't know. That'd be really super cool. Uh, but ultimately, 
You know, you can look at it like, I think it was an episode of Family Guy, which I'm only familiar with because my husband watches it constantly. <laughs> um, and there was an episode where the baby Stewie is like, hates his family and uh, winds up getting reborn into a different family. And mm. he dies and then suddenly he's uh, he wakes up like... And the doctor's pulling him out. And I think a lot of people believe that's what happens. Sure. You know, do you believe in reincarnation? Yeah. And I think, uh, well, I don't know. Sometimes mm. I do. Mm. You know, uh, I think it would be really, it would be really great, you mm. know, for a lot of people like, there's, there's a lot of deaths that are really unfair, mm. you know, with, with young people or, or, uh, or people who didn't get an opportunity, you know, like really like small children and stuff like that. You know, for for them and for their little, you know, spirit, I I hope that that would be something that they would get an opportunity to like, go change the world in another body. Mm. Who knows? Yeah. But I'm always the the kind of person who's just open to anything. Yeah, yeah. it's all cool. Yeah. So what's next for you then? What 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 are you going to be? What are you working on now? And then what are you hoping to to conquer next <laughs> oh boy so much stuff well i just finished a record yeah uh so we're getting ready to drop some of those tracks and you know the music industry's changed and how we how we put out music has changed sure, yeah uh, so the element of surprise is kind of gone in a way when was your last record uh the last studio album that right. i put out was 2012 which was an okay. acoustic record yeah and then yeah this record is it's exciting yeah. it's just i'm really happy to have done it i wrote yeah. a book of poetry oh, nice. um and that's finished and now i'm working on a still working on my cancer book which is mm -hmm. now third year uh and I find that I get lost in the research mm. um, because I want to get it right. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the, it's basically my version of a how-to book. Mm. How you to know, cope? How to have a great fucking time, you know, during these terribly uh, challenging experiences we yeah. go through in life. And uh, and it just seemed like a, a right fit to, to kind of lean it into a cancer subject matter just because that's my lived experience. Mm. That's a great title. I don't know if you have a title yet or not, <laughs> but How to Have a Great Fucking Time in Cancer Treatment. <laughs> that is a great I would buy that. <laughs> Good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Biff, thank you so much for, for coming in. I, I feel like we could talk. I could talk to you forever, but um, thank you so much for your work that you're doing in this space for the for your wonderful career. And, thank um, you. It's, it's exciting to see all the stuff that you have coming up uh in the future as well. I look forward to seeing it. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. That's it. That's my conversation with the legendary, the icon, Biff Naked. Uh, go check out her her uh, book, Biff Naked, I Biffacus Songs and Stories Tour, uh, which she's currently on now, uh, talking about the, the stories that you just heard here uh, in the book and on, in her speaking engagements. Uh, and certainly check out her music, even especially the old stuff again, too, but the new, <laughs> the new stuff. She's always creating something new. Uh, and I think you can hear how deeply informed it is by her uh, her personal experience and and her her deep empathy uh, and history that she's been sharing uh, with her with her talent for so many years. So I'm I'm grateful to Biff. Thank you for coming on the show. 
Uh, if you liked it, and I hope you did, I did, uh, please share it. Share it everywhere. My social platforms, I'm at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere else. Uh, so give me your feedback. Share what you liked. Share some quotes. Uh, tell me what uh, you learned from the episode. You can do that in the comments section as well over on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, the so-called normal, uh, subscribe to the show. Leave us a star rating on there as well. Uh, that really helps to, to give the show some visibility. You can do that too wherever wherever else you're listening. If it's Google Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Deezer, wherever else. Uh, subscribe to the show, listen, and, and share, please. I'd like to thank everybody at E1. Jonathan, Harrison, Adrian, Kimberly, everybody else who makes it possible. Allison, uh, why not? Everybody. Uh, as well as my incredible uh, editor, Dave, who, who brought it all together today. Uh, I think that's it. Okay, until next time, <laughs> this has been So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. <laughs>